Hi gang, Alastair here, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of my show, Coming Up Next, the podcast where I speak with the world's top creatives about how they've managed to create a life of their own design. Now, we're just coming out of the holiday season, the Easter holiday season, so you're probably feeling pretty good about life right now. Or maybe you've eaten too much matzah. In any case, I'd love it if you took that good feeling opened up your web browser, went to comingupnext.com.au, followed the links to iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, and hit subscribe to this free podcast. And, you know, maybe give it a five-star rating. Look, if you're feeling particularly great about your commitment to this free podcast, then you should leave a review, tell all the good people out there who are sitting on the fence why it's time they jumped off and jumped on Coming Up Next podcast with Alastair Marks. And now, episode 91. Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. You guys always seem to have so much work going on at uh, through Ruby Entertainment. Um, I, I'm a little bit kind of out of the loop at the moment. What what sort of projects are you guys working on at the moment? Well, we're, uh, we've got a whole lot of stuff in development, but the project that's nearest to getting going is a thing that we're developing for the ABC, which looks pretty, uh, pretty likely to go ahead this year. It's uh, something we've been working on for many years with another producer, Roz Tataka, as well. Um, and it's, it's a wartime story set in Afghanistan. It's a war dog story. It's a story of Sabi, uh, which is the true story of this dog that was a IED sniffer dog uh, and her owner that were in a, did a tour of Afghanistan and got um, at some stage involved in a huge battle, one of the biggest battles uh, of the, the war that we're involved in. There was lots of people killed, lots of people injured, a lot of Australians injured. And the dog, the sniffer dog, Sabi, got separated from the handler in the panic of things and was never seen again for a year until a year later uh, despite them looking for the dog everywhere uh, and trying everything they possibly could um, they finally found the dog a year later and it had been in a Taliban it been taken by the Taliban and kept in a Taliban village for a year and anyway they got it back so look that's the bare bones of the story we're doing a series hopefully doing a series uh, about that Amazing. Yeah. How long does a series like that take to kind of to get to this stage? Well, at this time, it's taken us to this point, I think, more than three years wow. of uh, all sorts of different things. Um, we, uh, uh, it's been in different forms with different networks and we've gone down different pathways and uh, this is the, the, the current one and we've got our fingers crossed that it, that it happens. What's the kind of, I suppose, uh, trajectory or thinking for you guys in terms of a show's life when you do start collaborating with people on a project like that? What's the kind of, what's the ultimate end goal? I think Screen Australia did a survey recently. They worked out that the average get-up time for a TV series was four or five years and I think for a movie it was seven or eight years and that's average mm. so we're not the only ones in this situation it does take we know it takes a lot of time often to get stuff up and you need to go down different pathways um, Secret River which was our last project took I think eight years wow. before it saw the screen um, for the first half of its year it was a movie which we were doing with Fred Fred Skepsi and um for all sorts of reasons, uh, mainly because we just couldn't get the big enough cast names uh, in the short space of time we needed to get them. We sort of turned our minds to television and that was a lot easier to do. But it still was an eight-year process and we went... I don't, can't remember how many drafts of the scripts there were. It was certainly 20-plus. Mm. Um, so you have to look at the, the long goals of these things. But it's... Uh, not easy though, surviving in that sort of world because <laughs> it takes so long and so much money and time where you don't get paid until the day you start shooting pretty well. So, you know, the three years to date on this uh, are, are without any funding or funding that we have to find that we can find for writers, but we don't have any income as a, as a, as a production company until well down the track. So that's the challenge. It's always the challenge. Mm. So I guess patience 
plays a pretty big part in uh, in your role. Yeah, patience and very uh, understanding wives and partners <laughs> and families <laughs> because, yeah, it's pretty precarious uh, often, uh, yeah. Mark Ruse has produced some of Australia's most iconic television, including Fast Forward, Full Frontal, Kath and Kim, and more recently, shows like Bed of Roses and Secret River. He started his career as a production manager making documentary films and is now an award-winning producer. His production company, Ruby Entertainment, have a massive slate of projects on the boil, including an upcoming Fresh Blood production called Leftovers, which you'll be able to see on ABC iview later in 2017. So what does it take to create an iconic Australian television show? Find out now. I did see that you, um, in an interview, spoke quite fondly of going to the cinema with your, with your father and watching a lot of European films and watching a lot of television and then recreating it with your dad's uh, Super 8 camera. Do you feel like those kind of experiences for you kind of set the tone for your career from that point yeah look very much so I think uh, yeah at quite an early age uh, my dad took me along to a, a film society and they showed all these great uh, European films like Ingmar Bergman and Rossellini and a whole lot of uh, Goddard which I just fell in love with and I was just transported to another to another world and I just uh, the other in parallel, I think I as a person had a very strong uh, from from a really young age a really strong connection with the idea of beauty, particularly in in all senses. I don't mean only in art. In in all senses, I sort of fell in love with the idea uh, and the emotion that surrounded beauty. And when I saw these films, I realised that 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 was the premier way of expressing beauty because it had everything. It had art, it had music, it had images, it had uh, words, it had ideas, it had everything. It seemed to me that everything came together in that art form and you could actually transport people in a, the strongest way, I thought. And that was for me, I had no doubt and didn't even think twice about doing anything else. That was what I was going to do and I never... It never deviated that. It's sort of been a part of me from an early age. And I was going to get into it. I didn't care what the cost was. <laughs> <laughs> Did, were your parents supportive of that? Yes, they were totally supportive, yeah, luckily. D- Dad was a uh, electrician. He was a tradesman. But uh, on the weekends, he was a filmmaker. <laughs> he, um, In a very simple sort of way, he had a, he had a 16 mil camera even that somehow he'd found. And he was a photographer. He t- took photos. Just family and nothing. He wasn't uh, publishing his work or anything or making films. He just loved the idea of photos and filmmaking. So I was always surrounded by cameras. And um, he was very supportive and we used to develop photos in the garage and and he'd help me sort of buy splices and we'd splice together stuff. So, yeah. That's very cool. Mm. Do you feel like that sort of uh, encouragement really helped you to pursue this as a career? Oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. I was completely naive. I didn't know what I was doing. But even, you know, when I remember at 14, I borrowed his camera and I went up to Queensland. They let me go and I was going to make a film about uh, pollution. This was the beginning of the big environmental movement. I was going to save the world. I was going to make this great movie about pollution. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> In fact, I came back and I think the film wasn't even properly exposed. Um yeah, it was a complete disaster, but that didn't stop me for a second. But yeah, look, having the the uh, support and um, because really I was the only one. There was no, I didn't have any friends or know anybody else that had any interest in this whatsoever. So I was totally on my own. So the support of uh, my parents, yeah, was was obviously very important, and they encouraged me a lot. Mm. And was it something that you were doing while you were at school or was it just, you know, just on the weekends until you finished school? Uh, I did it as much as I could at school. I think we had a science project that we had to all do. We could do anything we liked. So I decided to make a movie and I convinced them that that was okay. <laughs> they let me. Um, and it was just Super 8 and um, very basic stuff. But yeah, I did that and I did it at any 
spare moment I could. I was just trying to make films in the... the, the it wasn't easy now in those times. I'm talking back in the 60s. It was very expensive. We had a camera, luckily, a Super 8 camera, but film was really expensive and you couldn't really do much with it. Mm, couldn't just pull your phone out and take it No, away. no. You could just splice it together with glue and the sound, <laughs> you know, was a strip on the side of the film and it was about 16 frames behind the picture and so you know you couldn't really do any proper editing um, but it, what what you could do what you could do and I, I remember I just used to put the sound on a, a piece of tape on a reel-to-reel tape and run it alongside the film and, but you couldn't really do dialogue. Mm. I guess having that kind of uh, education if you like in a sense probably stood you in really great stead to uh, become a producer and un- really understanding and having a tactile kind of experience of what it's like to make a film in that sort of manner is something I'm sure that you still probably think about now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the thing that I think the skill I must have learned was thinking, looking back, is just how to do something no matter what, just get the resources and try and find a way of doing it no matter how. I just didn't even think, oh, that's too hard. I remember, <laughs> I remember now looking back, one of my first films and it was to do with this one about trying to tackle the environmental issues, was I wanted to do the creation of the world with the Super 8 camera, (laughs) the Big Bang. So I remember I figured out this way of tying the camera onto the lawnmower and I got a tin can with a light in it and I wanted to sort of zoom in on this big bang, zoom out on this big bang. So I started off and was just wheeled the wheelbarrow, the, the lawnmower backwards in the in the garage. This was just on my own. I mean, I don't think it worked very well, but uh, yeah, I think it gives you those skills where you say you, you never say it can't be done. Mm. I was trying to do Star Wars in the garage with the Super 8 camera. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I refused to be uh, told it couldn't be done. And which character were you playing? <laughs> I was the cameraman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, look, it did come from my dad. He was, he was, uh, we, we didn't have a lot of money. And I remember being really, he was such a hero because he made uh, an enlarger for photos. We couldn't ever afford to buy an enlarger. So he made it out of tin cans. So he had, he made a bellows with different cans that fitted in inside each other and you could put, pull them up and down and he, bought the lens but everything else he just made by himself mm. it was amazing necessity is the mother of invention yeah yeah well we're still doing it now that today <laughs> <laughs> we're actually doing this podcast with two cans and a bit of string that's right <laughs> um so coming out of school and coming into i suppose uh you know pursuing filmmaking professionally you know i mean the slate of uh shows and and um and films that you've been a part of is you know almost like a who's who or a what's what of uh, of australian programming from um you know from the 80s and the 90s you know fast forward full frontal uh kath and kim you know lane on woodley's stuff the game um crackerjack uh something that i didn't uh that or that i wasn't aware of that you kind of started off or a lot of the things that you were doing early on were actually in the field of documentary so I suppose now having heard what you did kind of growing up and what your kind of pursuits were in terms of trying to save the world, that kind of makes a little bit more sense. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm interested to know what was it about documentary that kind of inspired you in the first place? Well, look, documentary really, I fell into that because it was my first job. Uh, I did film school for three years and um, we were very, I was lucky I landed in a great group. There was about five of us left at the end of the three years and we just le- we were determined to get a job. That We knew that it was very difficult and that people from film school weren't very seen very well. So we came up with this idea at the beginning of the year that we would make five films designed to get us jobs. We didn't care about anything else but that, so they were to be big and grand and splashy. And... We did entirely that. We we went and knocked on famous actors' doors and we went and convinced people to give us the beautiful locations and we just and then we hired a cinema at the end of the year, put them on, and we spent a month going inviting every single person in the film industry and then we put on a big party afterwards and we all got offered a job the next week. 
Uh, it worked. Wow. It worked. <laughs> and the job that I got was, yeah, with this, pretty well was with this company that mainly did documentaries. Um, so I ended up there, which was great. It was a small company. You got to do everything from, you know, sweeping the floor to editing to directing to producing to everything. Although I was hired as a sort of a production manager, so that was the main job that I did. Um, but I did a bit of everything. And, uh, yeah, it was a really good learning curve because document documentaries are really the way we made them which is not as common today but the way we did them was you would go and shoot a whole lot of stuff and then spend three months putting something together and then you'd have a look at it and quite often rip it apart and start again um, and you would write a story from the images that you had until you got something really good but it was a great training ground it was all on film of course so <laughs> um, you learn a lot mm. from that but uh yeah, it was a good training ground. But it, during that time, that company also made a feature film, which was good to do too. That was a bit of a shock, but doing that. But why, why was that a shock? <laughs> oh, just once again, I was totally unprepared. Right. <laughs> um, I think I did a course in production managing drama for, for four or five weeks beforehand, one night a week, and that was my only training for doing production managing a movie. Yeah, I remember going through a set of calculator batteries every night when I tried to do the accounts. We didn't even have an accountant. I had to do everything. <laughs> I guess that's kind of the way, even now, of the uh, of the Australian film industry. It's sort of a, a need to be jack of all um, in, in a way. I wonder what you kind of, what, what you saw the role of the producer as being then and if that's changed to what you see it as being now all these years later. I think the... Um well, look, there's various levels. I, I sort of prided myself on becoming, before a producer, a production manager in the in the classical English sense of what a good production manager would be, which I think today would be called probably a line producer. But it's that idea of, and I think it's one of the most creative roles on the, on the job because it's where you actually are in charge of putting the value on the screen, putting production values on the screen. So you need to decide... And you have the power to decide really what to enhance the value of what's being done enormously. You need to recognise where the value is, where the creativity is, where the important things are and get up, find a way of putting them on screen and then manage the rest so that you can save money. Um, it's a resource and a creative resource management thing, which is I see how production management and the whole physical producing of a movie should be run. I remember I learnt this from, over the years I've learnt from many people, one of the people I've learnt the most from was a guy called Ted Emery, who was a director uh, who directed and fast forward, was creative, uh, responsible for all that genius stuff. And we used to get, he taught me to do this, we used to get together at the beginning of a particular series and we'd say, okay, this is where we want to put our value, we want to be able to do this send up of an ad so that it looks like we spent a million bucks on it and in order to do that I'm prepared to we'll do this simply we'll find a simple way of doing this we'll find, get that writer that writes great stuff and you can just put it in front of a great flat and it's still funny and we managed the whole thing so that we could it looked like we'd spent millions but it was only on one or two or three different things so it's often a matter of recognizing talent recognizing the values that you want to put on the screen and making it happen no matter what and do you think that still all applies today is that still a kind of integral part of what you see the role of the producer yeah i think so i think production manager i think it is yeah i think it is i think there's um there's a that's sort of the production management line producer sort of role and a producer needs to have that in spades but there's a when you step up to the actual producer i think there's another role another couple of roles that gets added onto that I think there's possibly three. One is the entrepreneur, where you need to be able to not only make the thing but get the thing happening from scratch, from nothing, from, from nothing, find something and make it come true. So that's all the, you know, finding of the, the material, finding of the people to do it and finding of the finance. Uh, I think that, that element is, is uh, a key thing. Uh, the second big thing is the whole thing of co-creating something with a group of people. I find this one of the most 
um, satisfying part of being a producer that you are wherever the idea comes from, whether it comes from me or a, a book that you find or somebody comes to us with a, a vision, identifying that vision and then bringing it to life together in a team because it's never just one person. But there needs to be a vision and you, you need to, as a producer, protect that, protect that vision and, in heart, and nurture it and bring it to life and then actually make it happen within a group of, firstly, a, group, a writing group, a development group, but then, a, you know, a larger and larger group of people. I think that's the other uh, great part of being a producer. And the other the other one is <clears throat> just the, uh, which is something that's also been a great challenge and a great joy, which is the, which is not a really, a, it's, it's the role that some producers take on of actually running a production company which is to, to make something that's sustainable in the long term that can keep going, keep surviving and keep being able to do all those things. Yeah, so those three things, I think, are additional to the actual physical producing, which is where I learnt my chops. Mm. So to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the amazing work that you did, you know, in the, in the 80s and the 90s, I'd love to know or to kind of get a bit of insight into, say, fast forward, how was that brought to you as some, or how were you brought to that, whichever way that kind of went as a, as a show and as a concept? And then how did you see the show evolve into, you know, the, one of the most iconic uh, sketch comedy series of all time? Well, look, really, it was just that old thing, <laughs> really, of um, a whole lot of steps that lead to thing, but it was lead to something, but it was really being in the right place at the right time. But there were a whole lot of steps that if I hadn't taken, I wouldn't have been in that place at that time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I happened to be working at Channel Seven at that time, doing a drama series, and that finished. And then I was working. They said, "Oh, can you help out with this new show that's coming, which was called Tonight Live." And we did, which was with Steve I Tonight Live with Steve Ozard, and we did the first five, the pilots. We did five pilots for that show, and I helped out as the, uh, working as a sort of a line producer on that. And so that finished, and then that was being made by a production company called Art of Services. And I knew that they were uh, had this show going. They'd just done the first season, and they were looking to do another season. And I was approached by them because they were looking for somebody to produce it. They'd done... The producer that did it went off to do the Titanic, <laughs> the small little film, <laughs> small little the film Titanic. called the Titanic. Um, and Andrew Knight approached me and asked me if I'd like to produce it. And of course, you know, it was like all my dreams coming true because I had a, a huge desire to get into comedy, and I'd never really been uh, been able to. And he was offered was offered to me on a plate, but in order to do it, I had to keep line producing tonight live which was live to air one hour every night five nights a week good grief uh, and produce this sketch series which is probably the most demanding thing i've ever done in my life (laughs) how many hours a week were you working well yeah i didn't get home very much (laughs) at all um i only had to do the two for six months we found somebody to fill in but it was pretty hectic there for a while Mm. yeah and it was just an amazing sort of ride to get on i think that's the most amazing show i've ever worked on uh, in in the in the it was so intense. We used to it was an intensity that involved us doing something to the highest level of quality. Like we would do, for instance, you know, probably fifteen or sixteen big sketches each, which had a completely different set, which might have been the set of a sitcom, and then the set that was an ad, and a whole level of production that other people had taken months. And we would have an hour to do it Mm. Uh, and a a very limited budget. We had a small budget and trying to make it happen was just like, I don't know how we did it. And a very small crew. We had, for instance, we had no location manager. We had no catering. We had no, it was very basic sort of TV crew at that time. No safety officer. There would have been, I don't know, 20 or so basic crew that did that show, whole show <clears throat> and to top it all off there was this time pressure because we delivered the show on a tuesday night and it went to air on thursday night so there was yeah, no wow. margin for error at all we had to edit it sound produce it 
do the music. It was all composed music, the whole thing for that show, which was 43 minutes, high-quality narrative content every week within six days, basically. That's that's. That was, it was absolutely manic. <laughs> and we did 26 hours of that every year. <laughs> so we uh, almost killed ourselves. But yeah, that was amazing. What do you think the, the kind of key creative ingredients were to the success of the show? Oh, there was no doubt that we had just amazing talent. All that talent had been sort of in the theatre restaurants and up and coming and stand up. Um, for for many years and now sort of had the first chance to to end up on TV. And we had this crew at Channel 7 who'd been doing football and sport and news and got into the industry because they wanted to do something really creative. And suddenly they were, we were had these people who we said, come on, let's go and do this. And we sort of almost ran away with the key and <clears throat> all these people would sneak in and we'd get, sneak the facilities at night and they were so enthusiastic that they would give two and a half times the effort just to, just to, with the challenge of getting it done. And it was just the timing, the amazing talent. And we had an amazing writers, amazing director in Ted, and we had Andrew Knight, who's one of the best writers in the country, and a team of writers behind him who, who, who you know, you just can't get any more. It was fantastic. So, I don't know, it was just the sort of... A, the, Timing, I think. Timing is everything we happen to have. And and what an incredible cast. I mean, we had that cast of uh, Gina and Jane and Michael Veach and Mark Downey and Jane Turner. I mean, it was just, you can't think of a better. Magda, Glenn Robbins. I mean, uh, it was an amazing group of people. Mm, it's, you know, guys who are still working in the Australian comedy scene. Still working, yeah, and still still pumping it out. And, uh, and you know, it was a really strong little family unit uh, we were very united and in producing something we just wanted to shock the world and it was fantastic <laughs> you know <laughs> we wanted to push the boundaries <laughs> it feels in a way like that really has been and still is the benchmark for australian sketch comedy and it feels as though to me that 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 it's never really be- i mean full frontal was was great as well but it feels as though that level that that fast forward set probably um, more by chance than design just Mm. as you say by the timing and the magnitude of all the people that came together in that kind of perfect storm Mm. it seems like Australian sketch comedy hasn't been able to re uh, I suppose redo that kind of level again or achieve that kind of level of success again yeah look it was so intense Uh, we did the show I remember after about the third year second or third year we thought very seriously about stopping, but we couldn't because we were we had such a huge audience. I mean, we had every week we had the same size audience that you get for a grand final. Yeah, wow. Um, it was just mega. Um, so we wouldn't ever have been allowed to stop. But we felt creatively that we'd reached the point where we'd sort of sort of didn't know how to do to excel ourselves further and further every week anymore. And really. Um, from every point of view, production-wise, writing-wise. And that was just a feeling that we had. And obviously, we went on. but And then, you know, sketch comedy then went on for another 10 or 15 years. But I think uh, sometimes at the beginning, you do sort of start off in a big high, and it's very hard to just get better and better and better. It just stays at the same level mm. um, because you sort of have done it. You know, I mean, I saw sketches I, I remember used to watch years later, and I saw a sketch, and it was almost identical to one that we'd done, and they wouldn't have copied it's just that you know there's only a certain amount of <laughs> ideas of ideas unless you go into some sort of different genre of sketch comedy which is what starts hap- hap- happening in other countries where they're a bit more adventurous than here mm. i mean fast forward was an amazing accident that it was allowed to keep going because the first year it didn't rate that well but i remember uh, that the, the banks were in charge and there was some real so there wasn't a huge eye kept on it uh, and there was some amazing people who let us get away with it at channel 7 um, who weren't under the pump of, um, of, of you know, an owner, owner for that year. So it was a, a wonderful sort of opportunity to be able to exist in that environment. But it couldn't happen today, I don't think. Mm. Um, if you don't rate, you know, at the, at the top after your first couple of shows, you're axed nowadays. But the show had a whole year to get going. You said that, uh, that this was 
like your dream job, I suppose, a dream come true handed to you on a platter. Mm. When fast forward is kind of in its full flight or maybe perhaps towards the end of its existence, were you, did you then find yourself in a position where, you were, where people were bringing more projects to you to produce? Yeah, definitely. Look, that was the beginning of this company called Art of Services, which was uh, run by Andrew Knight and Steve Izard. And at that time, um, we didn't even have an office. We did, our offices were Channel 7. Um, and yet we were doing these two shows. We were doing Tonight Live and Fast Forward. But then, of course, um, there was a huge desire to do a lot more. And, and I was the only real producer there. So I ended up doing producing everything. And we did a whole lot of other stuff. We did a sitcom called Bly, which I did the first few episodes of. And we did a whole lot of pilots for other sitcoms. We did a show with John Clark called the Royal Commission in the Australian Economy, which was a, sort of a, a television version of the stage play that uh, he and Ross Stevenson wrote. What was he like to work with and observe in? Oh, yeah, well, you know, John was uh, amazing. You know, I worked with John a lot after that as well. Yeah, it was just incredible. He and Ross were uh, geniuses, really, geniuses of comedy and, and what, such lovely people. Uh, at the same time, yeah, you, you, you felt like you were working with the best people in the world, and I think you were, I was. I was so lucky I couldn't I had to pinch myself <laughs> every morning when I came into work. <laughs> yeah. So, with these projects coming into you now, I just want to skip over, skip ahead a little bit. At what point was it that Kath and Kim was brought to you as a as a potential project to um to get up? Well, it was really like uh, it was an extension of of uh, of that fast forward days because Kath and Kim was, you know, started uh, life in in those sketch shows which melded into Big Girl's Blouse and something stupid, where which my business partner Steve produced with uh, Gina and Jane and Magda and Mark and. Um, Really, it was like a family. We were all worked together. We all knew each other, and all the people that were involved—not only ourselves, but all the crew people, uh, the writers, the script editors, director. As in, uh, there was a couple of directors, Kevin Carlin, Ted Emery. We we're all sort of like a, a family that did comedy, and we did each other's shows all the time. So it was sort of a natural uh, thing that um, we would be on board. It wasn't only us, it was the whole family. It was like a family affair, really. Or or a, a sort of a team of people that did shows together. Mm. And we'd go off and do something else, and we, but we'd come back and always do each other, help each other out and do each other's shows, yeah. Did you know when you, when you were uh, given the script or the kind of concept of the show, did you kind of have any idea how big it would become? Well, it was sort of something that we, we just were... were was was like it happened not quite often in fast forward you'd get a script and every now and then and you just roll on the floor laughing we'd just have so much fun uh, all the cast and ted we would just spend so much time laughing because it was so funny uh, doing a lot of sketches and when we when we got the scripts for um and look the kath and kim had been done in a shorter version on some of those other sketch shows something stupid uh and Big Girl's Blouse. Uh, so it existed. We knew about it. And we thought it was fantastic. We thought it was the funniest thing we'd ever seen. And then we got the scripts. And we'll, I remember the day now where Steve and I, my business partner, read the scripts. And we were literally rolling on the floor with yeah. belly laughs. And then we'd take them into other some people and they'd say, well, what about the backstory? And this is not very funny. And, you know, and we couldn't understand how people couldn't see how funny it was. And it was quite a big struggle to get that show up. Uh, other people just couldn't see it. It was amazing. I think it's because comedies, <clears throat> a lot of comedies, not on the page, and we knew them so well. We knew exactly how it'd look, and you know. But the the show also found itself. Um, <clears throat> no one was quite sure exactly how it needed to be because it was existed in a sketch form. How it needed to be, how we needed to do it to expand out to, to the half hour so you know the girls were incredibly clever the way they did it and they tried various things and Ted tried various ways of shooting it I remember when we did the first series we wanted to try and do it in order a little bit 
because we knew it would grow from the way we sh- from when we first started shooting, and it did. And by the time we were up to episode five, we sort of went back and reshot a lot of ep one and bits of episode two because we discovered better ways of doing it, and it grew organically. And it's a great way of doing things if you can do that, because as much as you write something down, I mean, those girls, you know, the three of them, and and Glenn, you know, what they come up with on the set is just fantastic. You know, it's. We had so many problems on that set from <clears throat> trying to get people not to laugh. That, <laughs> that it was, you know, I remember one time, I think it was Magda, I can't remember, she just couldn't do the line. And in the end we said, look, no, everybody out of the room, we just left the cameraman there. And she still cracked up. So in the end we <laughs> set the camera and the cameraman went out of the room and we left her on her own in the room to do it. It was the only way we could get her not to laugh. And that was common, you know. There was just... It's great to see they, all those people, the actors and the director and us and me and everyone, we just made each other laugh all the time. That's what it was like really and that's infectious, I think. To kind of go back to a point that you made at the start about, you know, film and, and television uh, being a way to kind of create and show the beauty in the world. Mm. Do you feel like, I mean, I, one of the sort of themes i guess of this podcast is about i guess the meaning of life philosophically why we do what we do um you know what what it what what success means all of this sort of stuff um, um, i wonder at you know laughter and and um and sharing that kind of experience with someone to me is an incredible way of creating connection between people and um, I, I wonder if that was something that you were ever kind of uh, aware of, was that this kind of uh, gift that you were giving to, to the country, to the world, to whatever, however you want to look at it, not to kind of make it into this grand sort of thing. But was there this kind of sense of, wow, we're creating something really special um, that people are going to really enjoy? Look, I think underneath it all, uh, to me, I've always had... I used to have this hanging up against my desk, I should put it back, this saying which sums it all up to me, which is a a quote from Homer Simpson (laughs) who said, it's funny because it's true. And I think that sums up, and beauty is truth in a way, way. Um, and I think that's always, something isn't funny unless it's true. And that's a way of us connecting you know all our foibles and the truth of what's really true you know i mean you know the old thing of pricking the balloon of you know people who are trying to be something that they're not that's just one of the thousand million ways of making something funny but it always does come back to uh, you know whether it be satire or what it is that comedy is truth and it's a way of getting at the truth it's sometimes a way of saying something very awkward um, in a way that's acceptable to people and they laugh but you know it's communicating something um, about people and about each other that yeah brings us all down to earth I think um, and it is beauty truth is beauty I think yeah I suppose you know you look at one of the more contemporary shows in that sort of mold like Upper Middle Bogan and you go well that's you know it's a it's a massive kind of social commentary really mm. at, at its kind of foundational element but it's created a it's it's accessible through its comedy. That's right, exactly. No, it's true. It's uh, there's no better way really of uh, commenting on society than through comedy. I think um, it really does uh, in in a, in a way that's not threatening, in a way that's enjoyable too, because it's people won't watch it if it's uh, not enjoyable. But yeah, when you think about comedy, you can look into it and you can when it works for you, you can see you can say, oh, that's so true. When you see something, you know. <laughs> And it is, it's true. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so going back to, to Kath and Kim, what was the idea, I suppose, for you in terms of success? How would you have seen the show when you kind of were at the end of that first season, say, what what was success looking like for you um, in terms of that show? Well, when we finished it, we, you know, we hadn't, didn't have any doubts that it would be really popular. Um, but it wasn't always shared by everybody <laughs> that it would be. But in fact, it was. It was uh, it became the highest rating show on the ABC for that year. Um, and then it went on to even become bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. We didn't know that it had become that big, for sure. 
we thought it'd be like any other show, it'd be really successful, really good, but we didn't think it'd become the mega, mega hit that it did. Um, because we'd never been through that process before, really, I guess. But yeah, no, it um, it struck a chord, I think, yeah. in people. And um, it sort of identified something very true about Australia and Australians. And uh, people loved it. It struck a chord. Mm. Mm. What do you think, I suppose, to kind of hit on that idea of, you know, comedy being, I suppose, a mirror in a way, um, what do you think's missing from comedy on TV at the moment? Because there's not a lot of original kind of TV comedy in, that's made in Australia really at the moment. Mm. I think there's it's dramedy that goes at the moment. Comedy, for, for some reason, um, doesn't seem to be... And look, the, the networks are really following what they think is people were wanting. They're not trying to set the agenda. They really f- try and follow the agenda. But I think these times, um, they're going for more dramedy, where where it's drama that's either a, that's a little bit lighter. Um, a lot a lot of the networks have said to us recently that they wouldn't do comedy even; that they really are interested more in dramedy. Um, and I don't know what it is about these times where people aren't quite as interested in in laughing in comedy don't it's it's hard to know it's serious times i think Mm. Uh, there's so much serious stuff happening in the world that people are yeah i'm not quite sure what the reason for that is but yeah it's definitely true that the stuff that's really belly laugh funny is um i think we're a bit unsure about ourselves about what's funny anymore (laughs) (laughs) the truth Mm. but maybe the truth is uh, a bit Harder to know what the truth is. Yeah. Well, some of the more recent work that you uh, that you've done, you know, shows like Bed of Roses and Secret River, uh, far and away from that kind of fast forward mm-hmm. or Kath and Kim. Was that a kind of? Did you make a kind of conscious decision that you were going to move more into that kind of drama space, or was it more? Uh, was it a gradual kind of progression? What was the I suppose the kind of journey to that point. I think um, it was uh, partly partly because we, as a small production company, needed to uh, have uh, increase uh, the range of stuff that we did. Um, comedy. When we first started out, there wasn't that many people doing comedy, and we were lucky enough to get uh, a lot of work. Uh, gradually the industry's got more and more players now and we realised we needed to diversify a little bit. So that's why we started getting into drama. Um, it wasn't any any reason that we wanted to get out of comedy, but it was more we just wanted to have a wider slate of stuff. And we would love drama too. I mean, you know, I think these this era is the era of drama. I saw the statistic recently that about four or five years ago, I think there was about 200 scripted series made around the world. A couple of years ago, there was 400, and last year, I think it was 500 scripted series made wow. around the world. I saw that in 1979, there was 26. <laughs> so it's really, there's a huge explosion of drama with all the, and there's 60 outlets for drama in the US alone, whereas, you know, in the 70s, there would have been four. Yeah. So um, we really are in a golden that includes age. comedy. Scripted includes comedy, but a lot of it is sort of um, drama, and there's a lot more competition for an audience now too so people are having to do grander and grander things Mm. and i guess uh you know with the reality tv boom of the 2000s it's kind of pushed drama to i guess uh, to a higher level because it needs Mm. to you know because reality tv has become so popular that's right yeah it's kind of called drama to step up its game i suppose in a way that's right, yeah, yeah. And also, because there is a, um, a a lot more competition for the audiences, networks have had to spend a lot more money and get the quality higher because it is often a matter of how much you spend as to the quality. There's no doubt there's a link between how much the budget is and how good it is in terms of what writers you can get from from a scratch. So, yeah, the, the, the stakes are a lot higher, I mm. think. So, and the, and the competition is fierce, so drama's had to... They've had to spend the money and it's had to... And, look, I think it's partly also because there's been a sort of a... 
a demise a little bit in, in the talent that works in the films because there's a lot less films made. So all of that great talent that used to make films is now in both in making television, both cast and, and behind the camera. Mm. You've seen, you know, a lot of great talent work over the years uh, behind the camera, in front of the camera. What do you think... Well, what do you and Stephen look for when you um, when uh, when someone brings a project to you? What are the kind of things that you look for that say, yeah, this is something that we'd like to collaborate on? Look, uh, a number of things. Um, obviously, firstly, we try and find something that more or less fits in with our personal philosophy, which is very much about doing something positive for the world and that it's uh, uh, that it's of great benefit to humankind. In some way or another, I and mean, that can be anything. But um, also, we're very much very pragmatic because we know the marketplace. That's part of our skill, really, is to know what the marketplace is at a particular time. It's all a question of the timing. To something that might have a life a year ago wouldn't have one now. Um, so it's very much will it be? Will it get up? Will it? I mean, anything that comes in requires from you know three to eight years work so you're not going to work on something unless you think it has a very good chance of getting up and going in the future um, so yeah that's a big part of it uh, and it is the sort of the skill that we can offer because not many people have access to that information because we are in touch with the, the marketplace with the networks and distributors etc uh, on a regular basis we have an idea of what they might be interested in what they might not be interested in so that's the other thing that we look for really and that, that's not only what the project is, it's who's doing the project. Um, that's another as big aspect. I mean, I've spoken to networks overseas who have said, they've said, look, we're very interested in getting involved in you know, uh, projects that you might bring to us for our network. He said, and, and, the, and here's the list of writers we will accept. And they'll, <laughs> they'll give you four writers. That, yeah, well. So, you know, and writers get rung up now and asked, what project have you got? We want it, uh, just based on their name. So it's also not only the projects who, who who's attached to it, all those sorts of elements are, are important too. So it's kind of an era for the writer <laughs> in a way. It is really, yeah, very much so. Yeah, more and more, and quite rightly so. I mean, they're the creators, but I guess everything else is kind of an interpretive medium, mm. whereas writing is really the yes. kind of the really pure creative. Yes, exactly. That's right. That's right. So, what do you think? What, do you see any common traits, I suppose, in in all of these great creatives that you've um, had the had the opportunity to work with? What do you see as being the attributes of great creatives? Um, I think having something to say. I think that's really um, really something that I notice makes a big difference. I think having a, a vision, something that the that some and 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 a, and a a vision or a, something to say or something interior that is of great value to other to other people. I think that's what makes a project good or not. If you're spending millions and millions of dollars and years of life and hundreds of people, it's got to be about something that's important. <laughs> yeah. I think you know something that's of value to people and it changes their life mm. in some sort of way. You know they come out and they're uh, different to when they before they saw it. Something that's funny because it's true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for uh, for inviting me into your office and and having a chat with me face to face. I I round out every conversation I have with one question, which uh, could be particularly relevant to you, and that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? What makes you silly? Silly. Oh. Um, what makes me silly? I think what makes me silly is is the people that I'm surrounded with at a particular time. If I'm with uh, people that really make me feel very much uh, that I can be myself and totally go mad and they're not going to um, judge me, I think uh, that's what makes me go silly. Then I just sort of <coughs> let um, caution to the wind 
and uh, do it. But that's that's not very common that you find yourself in that situation, <laughs> luckily. What's what's one of the sillier memories you have from Fast Forward or Kath and Kim? Oh, um, oh, a few few things come to mind. Um, I remember once um, our director, Ted, who was an amazing person and, you know, uh, probably the funniest person and the most creatively creative person I've ever met in comedy. Um, and he used to take a script, and there was he would always enhance it in some way, add some whole level of humour that wasn't there. And that's what he specialised in, and it's why the partly why the show was so so good. And I remember sometimes you know he he'd get scripts and he thought, oh my god, how are we going to make this work? <laughs> And, you know, this was like, you know, 18 hours a day. And I remember once we built this huge set and uh, he walked in and he'd read the script and he didn't know. And I just saw him wandering around and he went out and he came back with a whole box of toilet rolls and he just started hanging them around the set. <laughs> and everyone's standing around saying, what on earth is going on here? <laughs> and he had some crazy idea. I can't remember what it was now, but... And oh, some of the, there was look there's so many so many stories. We, we wanted to do Star Trek, I remember. And, and how do you do Star Trek? And we had this thing that we always tried to make it look like as as close to the real thing as it was. So we got all these household items and sort of put them on fishing wire and hung them around the studio and did the whole thing with with you know colanders and uh, <laughs> and yet. We did it because the genius of that show was we recognised what was the distinctive look of something and we lit it the right way. And it looked like Star Wars, but it was colanders and, you know, <laughs> graters and knives. and <laughs> It was amazing. And um, well, one of my funniest memories is a very simple memory, though, is um, uh, and it, was, it had no set, no makeup, no nothing. It was just Jane Turner standing in front of a grey flat dancing doing her Margaret Bland dance, which was this sort of older woman dancing. And it's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And if you ever saw it, <laughs> you would just roll on the floor. <laughs> and that's, uh, yeah, that, that, those casts were just brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. But that was the funniest thing I ever saw for my, <laughs> my sense of humour. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mark. <laughs> no worries at all. <laughs>